Three Strikes You're Out podcast, the Outsports Baseball podcast, episode number 90. My name is Ken Schultz, contributing writer to Outsports Baseball Prospectus and stand-up comedian, going to be in Rosemont this weekend. Uh, but that's not why you're here, uh, because I have a very special guest on this week's episode. Um, my first active player special guest, actually, a 2012 third-round draft pick who has spent the past nine years in the farm systems of Cleveland, the Orioles, the Giants, and the Angels. And on such teams as the Mahoning Valley Scrappers, Akron Rubber Ducks, and Rocket City Trash Pandas, his resume is so much cooler than yours. Kieran Lovegrove is joining me. Thank you for being here, sir. Thank you for probably the kindest introduction I've ever had. I really appreciate that. You have a couple decades in stand-up comedy, and you learn how to make any credit sing. Like, I can't quite give you the full-on Steve Harvey just... (laughs) <laughs> hour-long production before you come on stage but uh but yeah that, that's one no, of the things I, I will i will take what i can get and that was plenty i appreciate yeah. that and uh most importantly and uh, i am definitely bearing the lead here uh you were a main feature on a story this past week from espn's june lee about living conditions in the minor leagues and in the course of discussing your life in the past nine years you came out and told everybody that you're bisexual becoming the second active player in Major League Baseball or in Minor League Baseball, uh, Major League Baseball systems, to be out following David Denson a few years ago. And uh, I'm going to start just by saying what I hope you're hearing all the time since then and since coming out to your teammates. Uh, congratulations and thank you, first and foremost. It, it, it is something that, as we just discussed before I started recording, this sport desperately needs people to be their true selves and to light the way for the, for closeted lgbtq members of the community trying to work their way up into the sport to know that somebody out there has also been where they are gotten to a good place been able to come out and found themselves in a better place because of it and again just really appreciate it kieran well thank you so much um you know i i have been seeing the word brave thrown around a lot and i kind of i laugh at that because uh me personally i don't feel very brave i don't feel very um special in any way, I wouldn't be able to do what I did without all those who came before me who were unable to be, you know, heteronormative or closeted. I mean, you can go through the list of of different sexualities and gender profiles where they had to live their life openly without choice, and they face much more discrimination, much more prejudice, uh, like, they are the true kind of brave ones of this story. Um, they have opened up the doors for athletes like myself and Nassib to comfortably come out and say, yeah, this is, this is who we are. Um, so, you know, first thing I want to do is just thank the entire community before me. Um, I'm because sorry. they, they, they paved the way. They, they're the only reason that, that I am now allowed to take on, you know, my small role in my niche of baseball and help to open the doors there. Um, but the whole road was paved with, with thousands and thousands and thousands and probably millions and millions of really genuinely brave people. Mm-hmm. And you honestly have become part of the story and part of the continuing narrative of brave people in the sport, that it is a through line now from Glenn Burke to Billy Bean to David Denson to yourself and going forward to the next generation of people coming out in the minors and hopefully sometime soon the major leagues that you will be referenced from this point forward as as a player who came out when active and as i say one of the two that we know of at this point and that is a huge thing and uh, and 
your modesty is appreciated, but also, I mean, you know, as well as I do that coming out in general is a brave step. And in a sport like baseball that is so tied to tradition and so tied to things like service time as a way of kind of ranking the clubhouse hierarchy, that to be able to to come out and be yourself in such a truthful way when there are only a few examples of that in the past and only a few examples, even fewer, where it's welcomed and successful, that's a huge step. And, and you've, you've done an amazing thing. Yeah, and, and I give... Once again, I, I will continue to try and remain modest. I, I give a lot of credit to the teammates that I had who got to know me for me once I finally, you know, put down my guard. And I'd spent so many years with this unnecessary chip on my shoulder because I felt like baseball being a business, I needed to be cutthroat and I needed to be, uh, you know, I wasn't there to make friends. And I spent many years with this kind of, horrible cloud looming over me and then combine that with depression and alcoholism. You know, I, I spent many of those first few, you know, five years in a really dark headspace. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that time it was because I was trying to put on a more masculine front or mask because it kind of felt necessary to survive in a, in an environment like that. You know, obviously it's a very masculine sport. Um, just, based on history and, you know, you have clubhouse environment and everything like that. And you kind of really do feel like you need to fit in. Well, I found out very quickly that not being myself was a key factor in why I didn't fit in. Hmm. I was trying to be someone I wasn't. Um, And when I finally got teammates who started to accept me for me and I started to find healthier people around me. And then, you know, in 2018, I had, I, I met my partner in Akron when I was playing there. I had a team that I really enjoyed and at that time, I had already, you know, for a few years, accepted my own bisexuality. I'd been out to a few friends. Um, I had known since I was 12 years old, so I was very comfortable with it for myself. Uh, but I like to keep it to myself. And then once I realized this is my authentic truth, I can't really live any other way. Uh, in 19, when I was with the Giants and I had a team that I once again really felt connected with, we were on a bus ride and... I really wish I could remember how the conversation even came up. Uh, might've been talking about Harry Styles. That seems to be my go-to. <laughs> awesome. Anytime we go down that route, I think we were listening to it on the bus and I was, or Freddie Mercury. Or, it was one of like the icons of the community. Mm-hmm. And I'd made some offhanded comment. And then one of the teammates was just like, so like, what do you identify as? Cause you're not straight. Are you? Hmm. And I was like, no, I'm not. I'm, you know, I'm bisexual. I appreciate you asking. Like, and everyone was just like, Oh, cool. Okay, cool. And then we just went, we had nine hours left on the bus ride. Mm. And from that point, everyone just sort of embraced that as a fact of my life and didn't treat me any differently because of it. And that, you know, continued when I got to Baltimore later that year, when I got to the Dodgers, incredible environment there with the Dodgers. And then with the Angels this year, the first thing I did when I got to spring training is I was called by the coach to introduce myself. I was the first person to have that happen this spring. So I said, hey, my name's Karen Lovegrove. You know, I've played for these teams. Uh, and last thing you should know, you know, I'm probably the only openly bisexual teammate any of you have ever had. So if you have questions about this, please come and ask me, because that's how we're going to foster understanding. And I will say that throughout my entire year this year, my teammates have been incredibly supportive and curious and it's just, it was an incredible experience. It really, 
made me fall in love with baseball and clubhouse culture again because I was finally able to be myself. That's really hearing that makes me think that my God, the game is in such a better place than even like five or 10 years ago. Like, Oh, absolutely. Even when I got in, uh, mm -hmm. just the things you hear in the clubhouse, the, the verbiage has changed pretty drastically. You don't hear as many aggressive homophobic slurs as you used to. They used to be thrown around pretty loosely. And even just through the kind of change of culture across the U S it's cleaned up in baseball. Hmm. You know, baseball itself is cleaning itself up. It is becoming more progressive. It is coming more understanding while there are always going to be players themselves who individually do not agree with it. Um, the culture itself seems to be moving forward. Yeah. W would you venture a guess that maybe one of the influences in that too, is that because over the past five or so years, the game on its highest level has become so concentrated in, um, in uplifting its culture of youth and in players who are about expressing themselves and expressing their individuality that maybe for the first time at all levels, the game is able to say, okay, we're willing to accept you as an individual first and welcome you on board this team. And you don't have to gain the approval of like the oldest guy in the clubhouse necessarily, or the 70 year old old salt of a manager has to somehow anoint you like his official team leader that that you can be yourself because that's the way the game has changed over the past five years yeah that is what it feels like it feels like um finally players are are being respected for the fact that they're talented enough to be a professional baseball player but more importantly they're entirely allowed to be themselves as long as it's not detracting from the team there's plenty of instances in which you have great athletes whose uh you know outward actions or outward or uh, outward vocalizations are so far on the realm of me, 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 that it pulls away from the actual team. Um, you know, a baseball team is taking, you know, 20, it used to be 25 rostered, 28, whatever it is, guys who are completely different from different backgrounds, putting them together and having them work and play like a family where each person's doing their part in the game or each person has to complete their job and it comes down to just trusting that the next person is going to do it. You know, even watching the, the Dodger game last night, a few good at-bats there in the ninth, Cody Bellinger takes his walk, ends up getting the stolen bag, but there's always that trust that the person coming in behind him, even with it being Chris Taylor, is going to be able to get a job done. Oh, yeah. And that, that culture is starting to permeate most of baseball. Nice, nice. Yeah, and Chris Taylor has a history of hitting walk-offs at big moments for the Dodgers. So even at a time where he was at maybe his lowest point of the year after the slump he's had over the past month, you yeah, know, that at any point, 72, something like that. Yeah. But at any point he knows how to hit in late innings of games and it could yeah. click in as it did. Uh, and, uh, and Chris Taylor, obviously nice to see the guy hitting the walk-off being the one who's also hitting the bracelet in support of oh, yeah. for the minor league. So that's also good. I, uh, I didn't notice it when he was up. I was just too engaged in the game. And the moment I saw it afterwards, I was actually, like in tears that something like that mm. could come together in a moment that big and that you have the slow-mo of him wearing the wristband and like that it's really nice to know that the major league players care. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Especially with the collective bargaining coming up this, this uh, fall exactly. and winter. I think they see it as, as how we see it, which is the game of baseball can improve by being invested in at the lower, lower levels. The foundation can be improved. You can develop better players. You can have more flexibility with players. It, it just, across the board, can improve the quality of the product we're putting out on the field. 
um, that's my you know number one takeaway is that why aren't we making our baseball MLB and MILB baseball the best baseball on the entire planet bar none? You know why shouldn't why shouldn't a team in northern Alabama be able to pull six seven thousand a night and show them hey the guys on the field could be big leaguers in a month. There's nothing physically that's changing in that month. It's just their consistency. Mm-hmm. Like in your backyard, you have some of the best players on the planet. Yes. And it, it is such a baseball owner thing too, for them to say, okay, we're kind of going to dedicate ourselves to building our teams around, you know, this wave of young players that, that they, the phrase they always use is cost controlled and financial certainty and all that. Uh, but in terms of how we're going to train them and on the way up through the minor leagues, uh, why don't we abuse them at every point? Sure. Cause, cause we can. It, it yeah, makes and, no logical sense, but that's the way it's been. And that's, that's and another baseball thing I hope changes. If if somehow those teams were consistently winning championships by not treating their minor leaguers well, then maybe there would be an argument. But it's been pretty clear that the teams that have invested in their minor leagues have had better runs in the postseason and had more success. Uh, I mean, if you look at Tampa Bay this year, Tampa Bay won the AL East, won the AAA championship, missed the AA championship by one game won the high A, won the low A, and won the Florida State. I mean, they nearly swept the entire minor leagues, and they're still doing it at the big league level on a very tight budget. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you can't tell me it's too expensive because the tightest, you know, the tightest team budget out there is getting it done. So, you know, there's no more excuses. There's too much evidence. Um, you know, it, it is time to have the conversation. Absolutely. And I mean, on the subject of Tampa Bay, like if they go anywhere in this postseason, it's going to be because Wander Franco hits like the way he did over the past two months. And somebody that you have to, I mean, without the development of him, they go nowhere. And that's, I mean, case in point to everything you just said. And like, what do you win with? You win with pitching and defense. So what do the Mm -hmm. Rays get really good at? Pitching and defense. That's why they go out and get a guy like Yandy Diaz and Joey Wendell. Mm -hmm. Both former Indians players that came up through that system, which is another system I really do respect. I spent a lot of time there. I saw them consistently investing in the minor leaguers. Uh, and then I kind of thought, all right, well, I've been there for seven years. Grass might be greener. Maybe I'll get a better opportunity. And you realize that there's a lot of inequity in the minor leagues just yeah. across the systems. Um, and the fact that there was no uniformity in any of that really kind of blew my mind. That, Especially now that the MLB has acquired the MILB. Right, right. And uh, so going back to your time in Cleveland system at the start of your career, that you had mentioned the first five or so years uh, where you had kind of put yourself through a kind of mental torture, trying to be someone who you weren't and trying to kind of live up to an image you created in the clubhouse. Had you found that it also affected your play on the field? Oh, absolutely. Um, Whether it was because I was hungover or just not recovered from the night before because I went to bed at 5 a.m. You know, I was mm. I was doing just about everything I could do to in any way self-sabotage. I mean, it was it was really aggressive at one point. And, you know, when you're not sleeping, your emotions get out of whack. When you're drinking, your gut microbiome gets out of whack and therefore your mood is un- unstable. And as I've gotten older and I've started to research a ton of these subjects, um, I've realized just how poor of a position I was putting myself in to perform athletically. Um, and then you put on top of that the the mental health stress that I was going through at the time and uh, not really feeling like I had anyone to reach out to. And I didn't really feel like I had any close connections. Uh, 
you know, that, that feeling of loneliness combined with the alcoholism and, and the depression is just, it ate away at me quite a bit. Uh, obviously culminating in a, in a suicide attempt and then subsequently compartmentalizing that to the point where I never dealt with it. Jeez. You know, I just put it away the next day and I said, all right, time to go in and, or I had an off day. And then the Monday I was like, all right, time to go back to, to rehab. I had a hip surgery that year mm-hmm. and uh, the ability to kind of flip that switch and say, all right, clearly it wasn't that important. Well, you know, it took me a few years to finally work through and realize just what I had put myself through. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, a lot of people were asking me, you know, is it scary to face down an ownership? Is it scary to maybe lose your job? And I'm, my response to to Sam Blum with the athletic who asked that question was, well, face down death. You know, hmm. you stare death in the face and all of a sudden a billionaire doesn't really seem that scary. <laughs> or, you know, the media or the Twitter trolls or what it, they don't compare. Hmm. They don't compare to the void. So it it kind of changed my perspective once I had finally worked through all that trauma, just what I had how how far I'd grown from that point. That's yeah, that's really I mean, that's moving to hear, obviously. And uh I, I guess to kind of um uh, jump off of that, um you'd mentioned that what helped kind of pull you out of this mindset and kind of make you feel that it was okay to be yourself was kind of recognizing that you were among a group of teammates uh that would be more accepting and would be more welcoming of someone who is more their authentic self. Can you remember any specifics that someone had either told to you or had indicated to you through actions that led you to think that, okay, I can kind of let the guard down and I can kind of get out of this toxic mindset and be a bit more open about myself? Yeah, I would say probably a couple of things. Um, That team I had in 2018, I started to come out of my shell a little bit. The, The Akron AA team, uh, I had Tony Manzalino, who was my manager in 16, 17, and 18. I owe an enormous debt of gratitude to him for helping me to just grow up as an adult, how to conduct myself better, how to behave. Um, you know, that that I, I put a huge emphasis on that. And then slowly starting to realize that as we had conversations in bullpens, you'd realize how many guys were completely fine with it. And then you'd have the one or two who either through religious fundamentalism or indoctrination believed that I was, you know, a hedonistic mess who, who needed to, to burn in the fires of hell. I started to realize that if I can't please those people, I don't really give a shit. Yes. I can try and live a good life through what I believe to be is, is a solid moral compass and do the best I can. I mean, I'm a, I'm a stoic by nature, so I kind of agree with a lot of Marcus Aurelius's thoughts on being essentially nothing. I mean, as a human in a body, well, his quote is, uh, his quote of Epictetus is, you are a corpse carrying a soul, which I absolutely love. Hmm. It's a reminder of how much bigger reality is than what our kind of stripped down perception is. Hmm. Um, and I, you know, I, once I realized how insignificant 
I was as a person, I realized how significant my voice could be to others. Because there's bound to be more like me. There, you know, the, the quote that I said was baseball is a game of statistics. Statistically, one in six thousand doesn't match the population at large. I mean, that would be a drastic yeah. anomaly if there was only one. It would be jaw-dropping. Absolutely. And I know through my personal experience of knowing players, meeting players, talking to players, it's not just me. And there are those out there who really don't feel like they can have their voice or, or continue in the game because of their sexuality. And, and you, Go ahead. I, I was going to ask, do you feel that part of that is maybe that they haven't felt like they've met the right group of teammates the way you did yet or have found themselves in the right atmosphere? I would assume probably more has to do with public perception of, mm-hmm. um, you know, what it means to be a quote unquote man in baseball. Um, that somehow if you're anything, but you would be perceived as having less of a performance advantage. Um, obviously we know that's a little ridiculous, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of crazy rationalization that goes on. You know, for me personally, my rationalization was, well, it's just my, you know, sexual preference. So I don't need people to know what I'm doing in the bedroom. Why would that matter to them? Not realizing like, this is my innate sexuality. I was born as bisexual. I've been, you know, like I said, I knew from the time I was 12, like concretely I knew and at that point, I just accepted it, but I never thought that the, the world would accept it as much. You obviously have by erasure and people that don't believe that bisexuality is a real thing. And there's been a few people who have been upset with me by, you know, being a heteronormative presenting person in a bisexual or being bisexual and presenting as heteronormative um, really rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. I would apologize and say I haven't had a chance. I've never been able to explore my bisexuality on the on the male side because what I was worried about public perception you know how would this be perceived by baseball media how would this be perceived by my family how you know and it I was too scared to even go in to that pool um having met my partner and finally having someone who really truly loves me as I am and has accepted all my faults and helped me to work through them so that I no longer am falling back on these excuses of, you know, doing things out of fear. Um, I have realized, you know, living my authentic life brings me significantly more joy than trying to mask anything. That's, that's an incredible thing to hear. And that, I mean, that's kind of the, the coming out story almost writ large in, in many aspects that you, uh, when you mentioned that your how kind of the fear of public perception preyed on you that even in for people who don't have a public public facing job that they're still part of the coming out process is wondering how the people that I interact with on a day to day basis who are even not close to me but like random coworkers yeah. will respond when they hear about that and you what you mentioned is that on on top of that of course is the baseball machine and the baseball publicity apparatus and all of these details that, that kind of add additional pressure onto that. So yeah, yeah. I, again, to go back to what you said at the beginning, um, everything you're telling me is 
this is such a goddamn brave thing, man. I really do appreciate it. I, I mean, the reason the reason I held on to it for so long as well was the implicit understanding of what was going to happen from a media point of view. You know, obviously it would be a story. As much as I would like to be in a world where I can just say, you know, oh, I'm bisexual in an article and then everyone goes, hey, good job. And that's it. You know, we're not there yet. We haven't gotten to that world. Now, granted, my own personal feelings on human sexuality, I think we're still underestimating how big the number of non, you know, straight heterosexual people there are. I mean, a lot of this has to do with human evolution and founder population and, you know, selecting for the genes of cooperation. But, you know, I personally believe that humans were a small population of probably Australopithecus who separated and then they had to choose for the genes of cooperation. And there's a very similar analog in bonobos. Hmm. So bonobos are chimpanzees' closest relative 1.4 million years ago, split by the Congo River. North side are chimpanzees. South side was a small population of chimpanzees that now no longer had to compete for food. And in that, they no longer chose for male-dominant violent traits. They chose for matriarchal cooperative traits. Hmm. And something very strange happened. They no longer settled disputes with violence. They settled disputes with sex. <laughs> almost entirely. The bonobo population almost entirely deals with confrontation or tension through sex. Now, based off the physiology of human beings, there's certainly a case to make that we did the same. Uh, you know, I don't want to get too deep into the the questions I have on it, but human genitalia. Human males have significantly larger penises and smaller testicles than other primates. We produce less sperm than other primates. We are not tip, we're not typically seen as a tournament species in which you have an alpha male and a harem. We're kind of in the middle of tournament and pair bonding. So you know, I don't think our understanding of sexuality is even close to being correct. Unfortunately, it's been marred by a few thousand years of, like I said, kind of religious religion. Yep. And, and the idea of man, woman, monogamy. I just don't quite think that makes sense considering all the numbers surrounding relationships. You know, it's a 40% uh, divorce rate with, you know, 20 to 40 of that being due to infidelity. You have enormous numbers of infidelity across the dating board. You have now an enormous spike in people identifying as LGBT or queer because guess what? A lot of us are. Mm -hmm. And I think it is just breaking through that societal standard of man, female, get together, stay together, um, you know, kind of changing the way we think about sexuality as an evolutionary uh, pathway to where we are now. And uh, since you dropped a Marcus Aurelius reference on me earlier, I would not be worth my liberal arts degree if I didn't fire back with a sounds like the bonobos have read Lysistrata. So <laughs> I, if you if, get that, I'm killing, just killing. If you want to see what I'm talking about, there are videos of it online. It is insane. Hmm. I mean, they almost, well, it's, we have the tools, so we probably have outmatched them, but I would imagine that early ancient humans and bonobos probably matched each other in terms of uh, kinkiness and curiosity. 
Uh, now, I mean, you look at the breadth of human sexuality. It is the most egalitarian thing that humans have. Mm-hmm. It is the one thing that we all, at least in theory, have the ability to share with another person. And uh, I want to make it abundantly clear that this podcast is completely against bonobo kink shaming. So don't, no, yeah. I don't go there. So that's bonobo kink, whatever, whatever you're into. Hey, they're, very, talk to you. they're yes. an extremely open community. Good. Go watch nice. bonobo videos. It'll, it'll change your life. But um, <laughs> yeah, when I started actually doing research into, into human evolution, this question started to come up more and more. Why are we so why is sex such an enormous part of our neurobiology? I mean, it really is a huge part of bonding. It's, it is enormous for human beings. And, you know, to me, you can see what happens when you have those who are completely inet- or completely deprived of sex and you have, you know, the quote unquote incel community and mm-hmm. like what it can do to people is really twisted. I mean, really, really twist people in all sorts of, different directions um so i'm you know not shockingly very pro-sex mm-hmm. yeah as as am i uh and uh yeah and to kind of uh we're kind of running low on time here so i wanted to make sure to ask uh have you heard from any active players since the article got published and since um since coming out uh, i know you mentioned if anybody uh, in baseball, wanted to contact you to discuss it. So your your door was open, and you would be welcome to it. Have you heard from anyone since then? No, no one, um, no one that's reached out and come out. I, I imagine it's probably still not an easy thing to do to someone who has been so in the media with the fear that you might get name dropped or outed on your own. Um, you know, if it does come up, great. If someone feels comfortable enough to reach out to me, that is an honor in my opinion that that someone would feel comfortable enough to do that with someone they've maybe never met. Um, but guys that I, you know, guys that played college ball, you know, guys, obviously Brian Ruby reached out to me and was just like, Hey, it's you and me. And I'm like, yeah. Wow. Two of what, I guess if you include independent ball, two of like 8,000 people. Hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I really do encourage any of them to just reach out and, and let me know. I, I I promise you, your teammates will be more understanding than you think. Um, yeah. Your your story and the examples you provided are, are eye opening and amazing. Have you uh, been able to get in contact with Billy Bean at all since this? I have, and I've met him a couple times as he came and did uh, presentations in clubhouses. Um, so I've gotten to meet him briefly a couple times. Uh, you know, I would love to to meet him again obviously now with with new information but um no i always i always enjoyed his presentations in spring yeah because it's fascinating to me like the the contrast in terms of in the span of less than 30 years really more like 25 years since his career ended uh to where we are today and your career that the lengths that he went through to kind of keep his sexuality a secret from his teammates like I mean, you've you've seen his presentation. It's it's heartbreaking and yeah, it no, is devastating. It, uh, it certainly struck a chord with me when I started to realize that the things that I went through weren't necessarily related to my sexuality, but had they been, I would. I mean, I would never want someone to have to go through that. You know, the same. Uh, it's the same reason I don't want anyone to go through trying to find housing again. 
or getting paid a far less than living wage or eating meals that are so below the nutritional par that we tried to keep as athletes that they're actually detrimental to your performance. Um, all of those things started to eat away at me. And I'm like, I'm leaving this game really no better than I came into it. And I know that it hasn't really changed for 40 years. And I don't want the next generation to have to deal with some of these issues. I want them to be given the best opportunity to be the best baseball players that they can possibly be. And the only way to do that is to make sure that they're taken care of from a legal standpoint, from a written contractual standpoint to where there are no loopholes to be exploited. And I'll tell you, when, when you say something like that, the echo I hear immediately, like that is what caused the MLB Players Association to become the best union in the country is players of the generation of the late 60s, early 70s, who realized that the fights that they were about to enter into with management were partially about them, but were really much more about the next generation of players and making it easier for them so they didn't have to go through the same exploitation that that generation of major leaguers went through. So the fact that now you're saying this as representative of the minor leagues and understanding that it's for the next group that's going to follow you hopefully will then mean that we're about to take a step that's going to make things much better for everybody throughout the minors within the next five or 10 years. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I hope it doesn't take 10 years, boy, I really hope it doesn't yeah. take 10 years. I mean, it, you know how baseball moves. So we don't have 10 years. Yeah. In my opinion, we have now five months mm. to get this right. Yeah. Because housing's only become more and more difficult. And a lot of these cities it's only become more and more expensive. And you know, when you have players having that have just had kids and they're now completely unable to support their family because they have to go play baseball. So the entirety of that support has to come from their spouse. It is an enormous amount of relationship stress. It is an enormous amount of personal stress that, that these players take on for the means of going out and entertaining the public. Because in, in essence, we are entertainers. Yeah. I don't think people realize just how high level we as entertainers really are. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about the best 0.01% of baseball players in the world. And at any given time, you may get to go watch the greatest baseball game you've ever seen. And it might be a game between two low A affiliates. Mm-hmm. You just never know. The way I always put it is you're going to see the same things you see in the big leagues, in the minors. You're going to see hundred miles an hour. You're going to see 480 foot home runs. You're going to see guys who absolutely can run as well as anyone in the big leagues. You're going to see all these things. You're also going to get to see things that you will never, ever, ever see in the big leagues because they're single one-time mistakes. They are things that only happen once, and then a player never, ever makes that mistake again, but it makes the game so exciting. Mm -hmm. You have things that just won't happen anywhere else. You get to see some of the craziest, kookiest, you know, Balls get thrown around here. Guy comes up, makes a ridiculous play, ends up getting an out that was completely, completely uncalled for. <laughs> and the whole momentum of that game can change. It is beautiful. It really, really is. Um, and you get to see youth and you get to see really spectacular athletes. Now, granted, my first order of business, if I were a uh, dictator of baseball, would be to get them into better uniforms because we yes. all look like we're wearing our dad's jerseys. <laughs> yep. Yep. Whoever decided that the smallest size should be, should be a 46... <laughs> oh, is out of their mind uh, it, <laughs> nothing you know, but john crux wow yeah i um sorry to rawlings i you know i don't <laughs> even think they make a 
football, but they do not make good apparel either. Mm. Like we got to step up. It's been a hundred years of you guys getting it. We got to step up. Like I look at look at Tyler O'Neill in a uniform. Oh God, that's like, the level of athletes. Yeah, even even as a Cub fan, I got to say, uh, hell yes, please by all means. Dude is yeah. stacked. Good Lord, Tyler O'Neill. I mean, if if Yanni Diaz ever wore short sleeves, he would scare <laughs> the kids. <laughs> like these are not small people. These are big, powerful athletes. And like, if we're not displaying them as big, powerful, explosive athletes, we're doing a disservice to the fans. Yeah, yeah, and and the sports in general, because that's that's what gets people interested in following for the next generation. Uh, Kieran, do you have anything to plug? while I still have it here. Um, yeah, well, I would like to plug the Fairball campaign. Um, if you go to and I wish I knew the website off the top of my head. I really should have prepped that. But no Advocates for Minor Leaguers, um, if you type that in and fair ball, you can go and donate to the campaign. Uh, and $10 gets you a wristband. $100 gets you the shirt I'm wearing right now, which obviously we're not on camera, but it's a nice shirt. Work to work to coach today. Um, and, you know, that I would just like to continue to bring awareness to this issue because if the fans are involved, it puts a ton of pressure where we need it. It's showing yes. that this is something that there's a lot of solidarity behind. It's not just the minor league players, it's not just the minor league coaches. It's everybody in baseball that wants the game to continue improving. And uh, that website is advocatesforminorleaguers.com, according to Google. So check that out. I mean, there is no better cause in the sport right now, especially as I say, we're about to enter into a very, very important labor negotiation. Uh, yeah. Kieran Lovegrove. Before then, we've got these playoffs, and I am so excited for them. Because we've yes. got Dodgers-Giants, and that's all I've ever wanted to oh, see. God. Yeah, like first time since the 19, 1962, I think, yeah, where they had. something uh, like that. 57 yeah. and 62 were the last times. Yeah, and then the Ralph Franco was 51. So like, like yeah, 1989 I'm, in the World Series or something like that. Yeah. yeah. So, we've yeah, gotten, this, is, this is what we've been waiting for. Yeah. We've gotten Yankees and Red Sox several times. We've got Cubs-Cardinals about five years ago, so... Yeah, the last of the great rivalries in the postseason for the first time. Oh, yeah. Time. And I, this, I, there I, couldn't be a better year for it. 107, 106. Oh, wins. God. Yes. Bring all that on. Uh, here at Lovegrove, this has been enlightening, inspiring, and wonderful.